Hi, welcome to this week's program. Teaching your kids how to be smart about money is one of the most valuable gifts you can give them because it will continue paying off for them for the rest of their lives. I've often said that if someone had taught me the basics about money and investing by the time I got to high school, instead of me having to learn those things on my own much later in life, I might have been a millionaire by the time I was 30. The lack of even basic financial education, just the simplest things like budgeting, savings, and how to balance your checkbook, is a huge shortcoming in our educational system. Unless they learn some things at home, most kids graduate from high school or even college knowing next to nothing about how to manage their money. The good news is that you can start teaching your children about money at a very young age, And that means you've got plenty of years to help them learn how to be financially savvy and develop good money habits. In fact, a Cambridge University study found that kids start forming money habits by age seven. But if they're already developing habits related to money by that age, then the smart play is to start teaching them money lessons before that. Now, here's a great money present you can give your kids. A big glass jar. You can start them out with this first savings account as early as age four or five and use it to teach them a wealth of important lessons about money. A glass jar is a better choice than a bank or safe that they can't see into. With a jar, they can see their money growing. Just the fact that they can see their money is likely to make them take more of an interest in it. You can teach them both the value of saving and the joy of wise spending with their savings jar. For instance, You could allow them to, say, once a month or once every three months, take some money out and go buy something they want, a toy, a comic book. Whatever it is will be all the more cherished because they bought it themselves. By only allowing them to take out a part of their money in the jar, you reinforce the value of savings of never letting the well of your emergency fund run dry. You can even start planting the seeds of knowledge about investing by offering them kind of like a 401k deal, offer to match their contributions to the jar week by week. Uh, Of course, you want to pray that your six-year-old doesn't turn into some kind of entrepreneurial genius who starts making $1,000 a week. Now, this tip comes courtesy of Neil S. Godfrey, founder of the Children's Financial Network in Chester, New Jersey, and is another smart money activity that you can get even young children aged three to four involved in. First, ask your son or daughter to help you clip coupons for the grocery store trip. Then, when you're in the store, give them custody of the coupons and tell them to watch for the items you have coupons for. For one thing, this is a great way to keep your child occupied during a shopping trip and keep them from getting bored. But more importantly, they can take pride in feeling like they've actually been really helping mommy out. To top things off, you can say thank you for their help and reward them by giving them the cash equal to a percentage of the money you save with the coupons and put it in their glass savings jar. Now, avoid the common mistake of sending a very wrong message by just giving your kids an allowance every week. Instead, pay them for their services like doing chores, helping out around the house. You want to teach them clearly that money is earned. You shouldn't expect people to just give it to you for being alive. This is a simple, basic, but oh-so-important lesson about money to teach your children. And by the time they're age 10 to 12, you can get your kids into learning about and getting actively involved in investing. 
Maybe turn your family into an investment club that meets regularly to discuss possible investments. You can either play investing or make actual investments. Either way, you can offer a reward each month for the best stock picker. Part of the investment club experience can also include teaching them the basics of portfolio diversification, what asset classes are, what index funds are, and also ETFs. Now, when your kids are in their teenage years and hopefully either working part-time or at least getting a summer job, you can teach them the secret of how to have their retirement all set by age 21. You ready? What's the secret? The magic of a Roth IRA where investment gains accumulate tax-free. Now, here's some really wonderful math. If your child contributes the annual maximum allowed, $6,000 as of 2019, to a Roth IRA and does so just from age 15 to 21, they can virtually all set to live comfortably in retirement without ever contributing another penny to a retirement account. The math, in a nutshell, works out like this. By age 21, they've contributed $36,000 to their Roth IRA, that's six years at 6,000 a year. And thanks to the miracle of compounding, if their Roth account investments average 10% annual return, then in 40 years, when they're just age 61, that 36,000 will have grown to just over $1.6 million. And don't forget, the investment gains in a Roth IRA are tax-free. Wow. So to wrap it up, here are some other smart money activities you can consider doing with your children. Encourage them to start a coin collection. Coin collecting can be a lot of fun and it can also potentially be profitable for them. Ask them to help you comparison shop, making choices about things like going with the discount generic brand or paying a little more for higher quality name brand items. These are exactly the kind of financial choice they'll have to make for themselves as adults. And finally, teach them to give as well as to get. Encourage them to pick a charity to support regularly. With most kids, it doesn't take long for them to realize that giving can feel just as good as getting. Are you anxious about your financial future? Have you ever made money decisions you've regretted and then repeated the same mistake again? Or perhaps you avoid talking about money altogether. Life is unpredictable, but your decisions don't have to be. And knowing where you stand and having an ongoing action plan will help you get where you want to go. So when you understand that the cornerstone of success is in making good decisions coupled with deliberate action, You can start on the road to ensuring that you're investing the way you should and feel good that you're taking care of yourself and your family in the best possible way. And you know, this has been the mission of the Steve Pomerant Show from the very beginning. So once again, I want to remind you that you can ask us anything on your mind financially by visiting stevepomerantz.com. And if you have more serious concerns or questions, I'll personally take the time to get back to you to help you find a solution. I've been helping people do just that for 35 years, helping them get ready for retirement, save for a house or college, and so many of life's turning points. So once again, go to stevepomerantz.com and click on contact. That's stevepomerantz.com.
www.unitedcapital.com. Investment advisory services are offered through United Capital Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. United Capital and the Steve Pomerant Show are separate and unrelated companies. You're listening to the Steve Pomerant Show. Should we ditch the penny? Should the U.S. government get rid of the penny? Is it something that should be relegated to history? Well, we're going to get the opinion of the former 35th director of the United States Mint, and it is said that he orchestrated one of the most impressive government agency turnarounds in recent history. He also served as chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Treasury and as staff director of the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. And he's with me now. His name is Philip Deal, and he's got some very strong opinions on the penny. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you very much, Steve. So should we ditch the penny, and if so, why? (laughs) Yes, we should, and we should have done it 20 years ago. When I was the director of the Mint back during the Clinton administration, I supported eliminating the penny, and that doesn't happen very often where a government (laughs) agency wants to get rid of one of his programs. But I even had the support of my union to do it. It had really outlived its usefulness. 20 years ago, and even more so today. But today, between 200 and 250 billion pennies are in circulation. What is the penny made up of these days? It's not copper anymore, right? No, well, there's a little bit of copper, maybe 2.5%. The rest of it is zinc. Mm -hmm. It's basically a zinc coin. And that happened, oh, maybe 30 years ago, where the copper penny disappeared because the price of copper got so high yeah. that people were melting down pennies sure. because they were more valuable as just copper on the market than they were as pennies. So with inflation rising every year, the usefulness of the penny has declined. That's right. Mm-hmm. A penny today is worth what a nickel was in the mid 1970s. Yeah, wow. So it has very little purchasing power and An indication of that is that there's virtually no technology today that accepts the penny, with Mm -hmm. the exception of Coinstar machines, which will charge you a fee to take them off your hand. I can't think of a more ubiquitous product (laughs) uh, created by man that, you know, does not interact with any kind of technology. Yeah. It's not rational. It's a lot that's emotional. You know, when I was Thinking about this segment, I was thinking about how I feel when I see a penny on the ground. I'm so conflicted because I know that (laughs) it's going to sit in my pocket and I'm going to collect it in these jars that I have all over the house. But I know it's really not worth anything, but I hate to see money left on the ground. So it's emotional, right? (laughs) You know? That's right. And you know what? Somebody did an analysis and I said, taking the time to stop and pick up a penny and put it in your pocket compensated you less than minimum wage. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not very productive. No. Plus, the fact of the matter is, they're not clean. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not saying they're disease-rich, yeah. but it doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. to stop and pick them up. So why don't you think the penny has disappeared from circulation? Why do we still have it around, in your opinion? Well, you're absolutely right. There's a strong emotional attachment to the penny. But 
there is also a very rational basis for why we have a penny today. In fact, I think the main reason we have a penny is because for very rational reasons. Those rational reasons had to do with economic interests uh, and political interests that have a stake in the penny. Uh, Most of the production of the penny has been outsourced to private industry and has been for decades. Uh, The only thing the Mint does is take the penny blank, which is supplied by outside vendors, and stamp it to turn it from a round disc of metal into the penny, and then the Mint ships it off to the Federal Reserve. So those penny blank manufacturers have a strong economic interest to keep the penny. Mm -hmm. And of course, the zinc mining industry does too. So, and then, believe it or not, the Illinois congressional delegation is a major factor in protecting the penny. Because of the person that's on the penny, right? Yeah. Yes, it's the seat for Abraham Lincoln that's on right. American coinage, yeah. and they don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. So those three factors are major obstacles, and nobody really in, on Capitol Hill cares enough about the issue yeah. to really push it hard and mm-hmm. overcome that resistance. My guess is Philip Deal, he was the 35th director of the United States Mint. We're talking about the penny. What does it cost to actually make the penny each year for the government? Well, it's more than the value of the penny. The Mint actually generates a profit for the American taxpayer with its other denominations, except the nickel. The nickel is also below water, but it's closer to a break-even than the penny is. The penny cannot be made. You cannot change the composition of the penny to get it into the black. Mm -hmm. And so it's costing something in the neighborhood of a little less than two cents a penny to produce a penny. Mm -hmm. And so the mint loses money on every one it produces. (laughs) And so it's more than just a nuisance to businesses to have to put up with and for consumers to jingle around in their pocket and put it into coin jars like you and I do, and then someday, you know, dump them into a machine to get our money back. We used to wrap them on the living room floor so we could go to Disney World. That's That's when they were worth something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And a ticket was only like $25 at Disney World. So what happens to pricing? You know, what happens to the Three ninety nine, four ninety nine, kind of pricing. If the penny's no longer there, well, there's a couple of things to bear in mind. The short answer is those transactions will be rounded. Yeah. And one of the issues that the protectors of the penny has consistently brought up is that inevitably those prices are going to be rounded up. I don't believe that's the case. In fact, you know, when you eliminate the penny, you could write into the legislation that. They had to be rounded down or up, depending on whether it was at the seven or the three cent level. I see. The other thing to bear in mind is that seventy-five percent of all transactions, and over the you know in the future, it's going to be more than that. Seventy-five percent of commercial transactions are done in electronic form of one kind of or another. Mm-hmm not in cash. So 75% of transactions aren't affected by this. And growing. Yes, yes, definitely growing. And then the other thing is that competition will 
restrain businesses from taking advantage of this. The reason why I believe this is if a company today can raise the price of a product by a penny, if competition will allow them to raise the price by a penny, they're going to do it. They would have already done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would have already done it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there is nothing in eliminating the penny that creates a new opportunity to raise the value. All right. One more question before we have to go. If not the penny, then why not the nickel? The nickel is closer to being at break-even, and the composition of the nickel can be changed to steel, and we bring it down to at least break-even and maybe even a profitable coin. Mm -hmm. And my attitude about it is, you know, the penny has been useless for several decades. Let's eliminate that before we tackle the issue of the nickel. So, you know, first things first. Okay. One coin at a time. And by the way, to convert your coins in these coin stars is not cheap. I don't remember what the percentage is, but I remember looking at it once because I literally do have jars and jars of these things in my house as I collect them. And it's like, you know, I'm not paying that. Yeah, I think it's like 7 or 8%. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) It's exactly. In their defense, there are ways of lowering that if you take a gift card or something like that. Okay. but. Yeah, <laughs> they're charging to take pennies off your hand. My guest, Philip Deal, formerly the 35th Director of the United States Mint. And to find out more about Mr. Deal and to hear this interview again, don't forget to visit our website, which is stevepomerantz.com, as you know. Philip, thank you. It was very interesting. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Steve. Take care. Are there any topics we're missing, guests we haven't thought of that you'd like on the show, questions you want answered? Contact us anytime at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z, dot com. Simply go to stevepomeranz.com and click contact to write us anytime, anywhere. Articles on the site you liked or didn't? Want to share your two cents? Comment on any of our guest interviews and tell us. You know, this show's purpose is to empower and protect you on all things financial. We'd love to hear your feedback so we can make sure we're getting you the information you need to live your one best financial life. Contact us at any time at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z dot com. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. 906 people are moving to the state of Florida every day, according to a report just released. This tallies to over 330,000 people moving to Florida every single year, and that's equal to adding a city slightly larger than Orlando every single year. It's an awful lot of people. So where are they going? And more importantly, what cities and counties have the best quality of life for us existing residents and these newly minted Florida residents? To discuss this with me is Jill Gonzalez from WalletHub. WalletHub is a Washington, D.C.-based personal finance website with a lot of great information and can be found at wallethub.com. 
www.thepatriotmedia.com. Hey, Jill Gonzalez, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. So I know that some of these people are coming here to work, but many of these people are coming here to retire. So question number one, is Florida still the destination many think of when contemplating retirement? It really is. Other states like Arizona and South Carolina have certainly made some headway in the past few years, but Florida still just very hard to beat, especially when it comes to the tax friendliness for retirees. No tax on a pension or social security obviously helps here. Great health care and lots of things to do. Wow. Okay. So Let's talk about the methodology, because you've actually ended up ranking the best cities relative to quality of life down to the worst cities. And how large was your sample? Just in Florida, we compared more than 100 of its largest cities. So for an exact number, it is 115. Yeah. 115. Okay. So that's a pretty large sample. And what dimensions of life did it actually measure? Well, it looked at really three categories. The first was quality of life. So things like how many golf courses there are, fishing facilities, senior centers, number of attractions, adult volunteer activities. That was the first category that we looked at. We also looked at the actual quality when it comes to crime rates, property crime, air quality, the elderly friendly labor market in case anyone needs to pop out of retirement, which hopefully Mm -hmm. is not the case. And finally, healthcare, Uh, healthcare facilities and home care facilities, uh, general physicians, life expectancy. So all of those things were considered here. Quality of life, health and activity. So let's drill down a little bit deeper. Let's talk about quality of life here a little bit. So number one, cost of living was very important. Now, some cities have a higher cost of living than others. And it looks to me from this work here that you assigned about three and a third percentage points to each of these many categories, all of them eventually adding up to 100%. And then what did you do? You rated them, you numbered them, and then you added up the points? Exactly. So the total points here obviously add up to 100, like you said. So depending on how many points each city got in a certain metric, in a certain category, that would be responsible for their final cumulative score. Okay, we're going to get to that at the end in the big reveal at the very end. So cost of living was one. Share of population age 65 and older was another. Share of households with severe housing problems, that was pretty interesting, which is a metric measuring what particularly? When it comes to uh, severe housing problems, that's where we're looking at housing unit lacking complete kitchen facilities, lacking complete plumbing facilities, a household that's severely overcrowded. Mm. So that oftentimes happens to the elderly and in some of these situations. So that's why this metric was included. Yeah, I've never seen that before. Very interesting. Discount stores per capita, elderly friendly labor market. You mentioned that before. So if someone is still working and semi-retired or fully retired, but doing a little part-time stuff. It's the availability of outside work, correct? Exactly. Uh, So elderly-friendly labor market looks at not only the share of workers age 65 and up, but the ratio of part-time to full-time workers in that age group as well. Violent crime you mentioned, share of commuters who use public transit, property crime. So there's violent crime, property crime, air quality, and then the quality of the drinking water. Moving to healthcare. 
healthcare facilities per capita, and that you weighed heavily. Healthcare seemed to weigh pretty heavily here, or there were less categories, so they were assigned more points. Home care facilities per capita, family and general physicians per 10,000 residents, dentists per 10,000 residents, nurses per 1,000 residents, life expectancy and death rate for population age 65 or older. Under activities, number of attractions, which include zoos, museums, theaters, what else is included in those types of attractions? Attractions would be most things that you can think of besides zoos, museums, theaters, uh, things like appears, for instance. Okay. Also, movie theaters. So all, any of these things that you could potentially go visit, historical sites are included in that as well. Okay. Senior centers, fitness and recreational sports, golf courses, and uh, music venues per capita, art galleries, and so on. Okay. So we've, we've kind of got a sense of the methodology. Let's go to the cities and how they actually rank from best to worst. And we're going to start with these different categories. So Cost of living. The cities with the highest cost of living in Florida were what? The highest cost of living, uh, a lot of very well-known places, Boca, Weston, Key West, Parkland, Coral Gables, Mm -hmm. those places all very close just in terms of cost of living. So living there costs you twice as much as in, say, Fort Myers, Winter Haven, Daytona Beach, which all had some of the lowest cost of living. I think um, it's interesting that Boca Raton was the highest of all of them. And, um, you know, I can see, you know, Key West, I would think, would be very high, and and Coral Gables, perhaps. But I didn't realize Boca Raton was, was number one. The lowest cost of living, as you mentioned, was Winter Haven, which is near Orlando, Daytona Beach, Immokalee, and Titusville. All right, so Population of people age 65 or older, the highest, starts with the villages, which is not surprising. Tell us more. Yeah, the villages, which I think is a very well-known retirement destination. Uh, All of these places really tied for number one. Villages at North Fort Myers, Estero, Bonita Springs, New Smyrna Beach, and Dunedin. So all of those places, a very high percentage of the population age 65 and up, uh, 70% or so. So okay. a lot of times the people- That's a lot. Yeah, lower than that <laughs> age are usually working at some of these facilities. On the other extreme, the places with the lowest population are Homestead, Doral. I don't know where Oakleaf Plantation, is that just Plantation, Florida? Oakleaf Plantation, Immokalee and Horizon West. There's a 15 times difference between the highest population of age 65 or older and the lowest. All right, let's move on to the most physicians, family physicians per capita. The most start with Palm Bay, Florida, Melbourne, Titusville, Merritt Island, Rockledge, and Tallahassee. The fewest are what? Those with the fewest family and general physicians per capita include Jacksonville, Pensacola, Panama City, and surprisingly, the villages. Yeah. So yeah, that was a one area where we were pretty surprised. The only reason why we were researching this that we could think of is that, one, they're going a little bit further out from the villages when they're looking for some of their health care, hmm. or 
you know, it is such a well-known destination, you know, are people really preparing themselves and being more healthy when they're moving into some of these places? So I don't know. I think maybe they travel up to Gainesville, perhaps where the big uh, teaching hospital is up there, Shans. That's just a guess on my part. Let's move to property crime rate. I think this is pretty important. So the lowest crime rate was Weston, Parkland, Winter Springs, Oviedo, Florida, and Port St. Lucie. The highest property crime rate was what? Some of the bigger cities in Florida here, which I don't think is too surprising, Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, Daytona Beach, Panama City, and Miami Beach all had very high property crime rate, about 13 times more than some of the cities that you listed off. Yeah, 13 times difference. Okay, so drum roll, where let's talk about the best and worst places to retire in Florida. Number one, I'm going to do a drum roll. I, I can hear that too, right? You can hear that. Number one, the best city in the state of Florida to live based on all of these different rankings is? Number one is Sarasota. Sarasota. And number two is Tampa. So I don't like this West Coast is beating us here. I don't understand. But what is it about these cities you think have uh, moved them to the top of the list? So the quality of life is certainly there. A lot of golfing opportunities, fishing opportunities. You'll see these uh, even more in these places than other places in Florida, although you will see opportunities throughout. But really hard to beat Sarasota, especially when it comes to healthcare and when it comes to activities. Uh, so that healthcare, you know, having that very close right nearby within city limits, I think is huge here. Okay, but not to be too depressed over this. Miami was number three, Boca Raton number four, Key West number five, then Orlando, back to the West Coast for Bradenton and Fort Myers. West Palm Beach was number nine, Clearwater number 10. And I included number 11 here because it is local to us here, which is Fort Lauderdale. So in the top 11, it's kind of split evenly between East Coast and West Coast. Now, I live in Delray Beach, so Delray Beach was number 15, still pretty high up on the list when you're talking about 115 different places. Coral Gables was 18, Hallandale Beach, 22, Boynton Beach, 23. Let's see, uh, Hialeah was uh, 31, Palm Beach Gardens, 37, Miami Beach, 39, Lake Worth, 40, and going down towards the bottom of the list here. Aventura, which really surprised me because that's a pretty upscale place as far as I can tell, ranked number 53. Royal Palm Beach, 54. Weston, 58. And getting down and down and down, Pompano Beach, which is a place that I really like, is number 87. Deerfield Beach, which I think has done a pretty good job of revitalizing themselves. They're down at 106. Coral Springs, 110. And this was the most surprising at all, Jill. The Villages, second to last, 114 out of 115. Poor Deltona was very last in place. But the Villages, you think of people retiring to the Villages, you know, in droves, and obviously you think they'd have a high quality of life. Final words? Yeah, I hear a a couple of things that really need to be better include property crime rate. I think because people know that it's such an elderly destination, that's where we're seeing more and more That's property right. crime is taking place yeah. from fraud to break-ins, et cetera. All right. So if you move into the villages, make sure you got your house secure and you keep your eyes open. 
My guest, Jill Gonzalez from WalletHub, and to hear this interview or any interview again, and if you have a question about what we've just discussed and have comment, we love to get your questions. We love to hear your comments. Go to our website, stevepomerantz.com, to join the conversation and sign up for our weekly update where every single week in your mailbox, you will see the whole list of segments that we've done for that week. And you can pick and choose whatever segment you'd like. You can read it, read the full transcript, or hear the segment, of course, right on your computer, your iPhone, your iPad, and all digital devices. Jill Gonzalez from WalletHub, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a pink one and a green one and a blue one and a yellow one and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show and I'm Steve Pomerantz. It's time for Real Estate Roundup. This is the time every single week we get together with noted real estate agent Terry Story. Terry is a 30-year veteran with Keller Williams located in Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome back to the show, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. So. You've got existing homes and you've got new homes that are being built and you have communities that are being built by sure. a major builder. Big players, yeah. Right. So there's this kind of relationship that goes on between the builder. Right. Who has salespeople called agents, selling right. agents. Right. And then you can go in there and just kind of shop using them or you can also use an agent like yourself. Sure. To help negotiate and to navigate. Tell me how that works. You know, so basically with these new construction places, the reason why you want to be with a realtor is, especially if there's lots of different communities, the agents, we have relationships with these new builders. You got to remember that the builders come to us and sell us on their product. They want us to be their voice. They want you to bring people they in the door. They want us to bring people into their, so they cater to us. So we do this. We build a relationship with certain salespeople there. So Steve, if you're a consumer and you wanted to go to ABC construction site, I would bring you. And so here's the thing. We are compensated by the builder. Right. So it's not to bring you in. I don't have it's to It's not pay. costing you a dime. Yeah. And what's also important to understand is the way that the builders price things, they've already factored in the commission. Yes. So you as a consumer are not going to be able to go in there and say, well, I I didn't bring a realtor, so I'm keeping X amount of dollars. It doesn't work that way. And here's why. If they have model A, model B, model C, they're selling model A for the same price that they sell for everybody else. Now, what changes is time. So as things get closer to build out, they become more expensive, lot locations, but the base of the house is going to remain constant. So there's really no negotiation of commissions. The other reason why you want a realtor involved is because of that relationship. I've been able to bring value to my customers over little things. Like, for example, I had the customer for a property, so did somebody else. But because of the relationship, we were able to secure that specific lock. There's so many, so, so, so many scenarios. Your agent is on your side. They're going to help you through the whole entire process. So it doesn't cost you anything. Mm-hmm. It's to your benefit to have an agent by your side. The seller's agent represents the builder. Correct. Right? So 
That's this idea of having someone on your side, even though there's not a lot of price negotiation that can it's be done. It's not so much price, but there are some things that can be done. I mean, can you, when it comes to amenities or tile, I mean, can a lot you of work out some kind of deal sometimes? Possibly. It depends on the builder and it depends on what phase they're at, uh-huh. especially towards yes. the end or maybe right uh-huh. in the beginning. They may have some more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not so much on price, but it would be with amenities. and. The salespeople there, like I said, we have relationships with them. I represent multiple people. So they want to make sure that I'm satisfied because I go back and I tell my office what a great experience we had or didn't have. So it's really to your benefit to have that person. Is there a sweet spot when buying these properties? Yeah. Now I am a layperson (laughs) totally in this, right? So a new development is announced. Right. The little mobile home thing you can yep. see with the flags and they're up, but there's nothing in the ground. You maybe see some things plotted out in the ground. Okay. So now it's pre-construction, pre-construction. prices, right? Sure. And so then you say, well, you know, I have no imagination, so I got to see something in the ground right. <laughs> before I buy. You're going to pay more by waiting. Okay. So, all right. So they put up their first couple of models. So right. fine. But you're taking the person who, the first people buying are taking the greatest risk too, because there's nothing in the ground. What if it doesn't take off? Uh-huh. So they're going to get the best price in theory. Now, Steve, back in the day when the market was going insane, people were standing in line in advance getting wristbands to be the first ones in there to pick the best lots, to buy four, five, six, seven properties in anticipation of the market rising and then flipping them. But that's, that was insanity. I know it was. <laughs> we don't see that anymore. Yeah. They, they put controls on that. Yeah. But that was crazy. So. But there is a sweet spot, it seems to me. There may not be, but in my, my little mind, I think there is because there's only so many lake front right. lots, okay, and those have a premium to them. Huge premiums, by the way. Okay. Huge. And it's just, it's just a hole in the ground where they put water in it. Right. <laughs> so, and you're never going to sell it for this, that price. So you, if you're uh, paying 150000 more for that oh, premium yeah. lot, you're yeah. going to, you know, maybe yeah. 30000 40000 <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, but again, you have to live there and looking at water is pretty nice, right? right? So you have to judge those two things. But then also within the community, there's lots that are really well situated. And then a lot in Florida, a lot of these (laughs) buildings are right next to the turnpike and 95 and all you got is a wall and you hear the noise of the turnpike and everything. Not when you have the music on in the house. (laughs) Oh, uh, you mean when you're you're touring the house, you mean? (laughs) When you're living in there, just turn on the radio real well, loud. Hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that a seller's technique? They have the music playing in the house so you can, but God forbid you should walk out by the pool. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I never really understood buying a house right, you know. Well, the there. model homes are so perfect too. The furniture's always fit to scale. Yeah, oh, that's you know, true. Yeah, yeah. There's all the tricks, no doors. You know, you open, there's no door. There's no door. So yeah, no, yeah. a lot of times you'll go into models with no doors. Yeah, so anyway, it's it's it's, Buyer beware all the time. And I'm right. sure there's tricks that, and you know, they have professional decorators that come in yeah, and they know the color scheme. They know exactly how to make the space look as big as possible. But anyway, so there's prime lots that are, let's say, away from the turnpike right. on the water. Yep. And so you're going to get, if you, you want to get those early if you can, because not only, it's not about money, it's the fact that there won't be They won't be available. available. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, that's just kind of interesting. Early bird gets the worm. <laughs> 
things that you didn't know about <laughs> about buying a home from a builder. I'm sure there's so much more we can go over, but we're oh, out there's, of, yeah. we're out of time. So anyway, thanks for that information. My guest, as always, is Terry Story, a 30-year veteran with Keller Williams, located in Boca Raton, Florida. And she can be found at terrystory.com. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. SteVPomerantz.com now features each week's show in shareable individual segments. Busy at work and want to come back to the show later? No problem. Every segment has a full summary of what was discussed, along with a transcription of the interview. You can read or listen to one of my commentaries. Hey, is there something I mentioned on air you want to find on our site? Well, you can search for it. So check it out and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you liked or what you didn't. You can request topics you want us to talk about and ask us questions. We'll get back to you, promise. And you can like us on Facebook, where you'll find out about upcoming events and subscribe to our podcast. It's all there at stevepomeranz.com. That's steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z, dot com. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. From time to time, I like to reach back into our audio files and grab a favorite interview, and this is one of them. It's from a 2015 talk I had with Guy Spear, winner of the annual Charity Lunch with Warren Buffett. In his book, The Education of a Value Investor, Guy discusses how the lunch changed his life and how his elite Oxford and Harvard education may have hindered him rather than helped him. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. My guest is Guy Spear. He is a Zurich-based investor. In June 2007, he made headlines by bidding $650,100 with Manish Pabrai for a charity lunch with Warren Buffett. Since 1997, he has managed Aquamarine Fund, an investment partnership inspired by and styled after the original 1950s Buffett Partnerships. He's an MBA at Harvard Business School, class of 93, and holds a first-class degree in politics, philosophy, and economics from Oxford University. And while at Oxford, he was a contemporary of the current Prime Minister of Great Britain, David Cameron. He's got a new book out. That's a wonderful book. The title is The Education of the Value Investor, my Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment. It's in hardcover, and as I said, it's just coming out. Guy Spear, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Steve, it's a pleasure to meet you as well. And by the way, the guy that you just mentioned, I think I'd like to meet him too. He sounds pretty good. <laughs> he is pretty good. Hey, listen, so, you know, I normally, actually, I never mention where my guests go to school, but in your book, you talk a great deal about the kind of education you received at these two elite schools and how it actually may have hindered you in your investment career. As a matter of fact, you asked yourself the question, did my education fail me, or even worse, did I fail my education? Please tell us about that. Yeah, I think that what I learned, and it took me more than 10 years, really, for the pennies to start to drop, that what I needed in the business world and the world of life and the world of real life was a kind of hardy four-by-four is the analogy that I use. You need to be good at many things, or you need to have a reasonably good ability at many things, like evaluating people, 
knowing how to say no, mm-hmm. figuring out if you're in a morally compromised situation and just move away from it, learning how to fail, all of those kinds of things, which are kind of practical life tools that I think that if I had gone and worked as a manager at McDonald's or as a burger maker at McDonald's and then worked up the ranks, I would have learned. But what I graduated with was, you know, I knew how to do quadratic equations when I left school. And I knew what the Rudiger Dornbusch exchange rate overshooting model was. <laughs> and I knew how to write really great essays. And the analogy I use is if learning how to say no in the right situations, learning how to fail gracefully is a kind of a four by four type skill. Mm-hmm. I was like this finely tuned Ferrari. The problem is, is that I came out of school and, you know, a finely tuned Ferrari doesn't work very well on a hardy mountain road. Right. So your education had a lot to do with focusing and following what the success route was in order to excel. But when it translated to the real world, it really didn't come in very handy. Absolutely. And I think that if I would have followed the very, very narrow standard paths that you get out of, well, my undergraduate institution or out of Oxford or out of Harvard, so out of undergraduate, if I would have gone into the government or if I would have stayed in management consulting, or out of business school, if I'd have stayed in management consulting or gone to one of the sort of well-known and well-trodden paths, I would have done well enough, I think, because they're almost expecting you just to have those skills. But I didn't want to take that kind of path. I wanted to have a life in business. Mm -hmm. And there, those skills, I think that maybe 10 or 20 years out, those skills and that, that knowledge might become in helpful as background. But, you know, my first job out of business school I was in there with some very rough and tumble, aggressive New York types who were out to win deals and sell things. And I was like, I was a little like cannon fodder, I think might be the right expression. So in your early years, you basically spent time working for a company that was really less than ethical. And actually, you know, I had a similar experience as well. I worked for major investment firms when I just started out and their culture was less than ethical as well. You know, we both realized early that we didn't really want to live this way, but your inability to kind of perhaps see the real world as it was based upon what you're saying on your education, what, where you came from, was maybe one reason that you made this very serious mistake. So tell us very briefly about that. And then when that was over, take us to what happened next. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I really contrast it and I, it really is shocking to me today. I mean, I studied at undergraduate I studied political philosophy and I studied moral philosophy. And I think that the people that I studied with would have said, you know, in this very sort of important voice, we're producing graduates who know how to engage in moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. But I was in this environment where somewhere I could tell that this wasn't right. But I didn't know what to do about it because my mind wanted to go to this sort of moral reasoning or what has been termed analysis paralysis. And in contrast to other people that I know who would have just said, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? Just walk away. And I to ask myself why I couldn't just call it what it was. And just going back to the university experience, you know, I was good at taking exams. I learned to be good at university. And so I didn't realize it, but, you know, you tell a fish that it's swimming in water and the fish says, what's water? I have no idea what water is. Mm -hmm, Uh, This stuff around me, I take it for granted. And what I took for granted was that when you're in an environment, you figure out the rules and then you kind of play the rules of the environment to succeed, except that I'd never been in an environment which was morally compromised. Mm -hmm. 
So there I was, and my whole mindset was, how do I figure out how to succeed here? How do I learn how to do it? And I didn't have the judgment to say, maybe I just don't even want to be here. Yeah, maybe this was a pond that you didn't really want to swim in, but you had no way to tell. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, I think that if I were a teacher, which I'm not, based on the experiences that I've had, I'd want to have my students experience some bad ponds, if you yeah, like. There sure. are not just good ponds in the world. There are bad ponds where, as you said, the right thing to do is just to walk away. I think those that are listening to us now that uh, are younger may find themselves in similar situations like this. And it does take some courage and some self-analysis to say, you know, who am I really? What is important to me? And does this really fit who I am and make you know, a decision once you realize that you understand what water is and maybe what the quality of the water is that you're currently swimming in? And then what I would say is, and this is where, you know, it's part of why I wanted to write the book and why I have this immense and deep well of gratitude for Warren Buffett, because I knew things weren't right. I couldn't put my finger on it. And of course, by this point in my time at this farm, people know that I wasn't seeing the whole everything of what was going on. So what I describe, what I can now see clearly at the time, I didn't see clearly at all. But, you know, I walk into this bookshop, I pick up I was picking up all sorts of books at the time, but one of the books I picked up was The Intelligent Investor Introduction by Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. And I became absolutely fascinated. And I just wonder, Steve, it's just such an interesting question, and I don't know what your story is, and maybe you can tell me a little bit if it's appropriate. But I don't know if Warren Buffett had not been there as an example, and I'm there reading every day in my lunch hour, Lowenstein's biography of Warren Buffett. I just wonder if I might have stayed there too long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I really feel like Warren Buffett wasn't aware of it. He didn't even know who I was. But in a certain way, knowing who he was and what he'd done gave me an example that allowed me to see a different way of living and allowed me to see that I really needed to leave. The book is The Education of a Value Investor, My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment. It's a new book just out. The author is Guy Spear, and he is with me today. I totally understand. For me, I was searching for a moral compass and didn't really know what the details were, but I found them through Warren Buffett. And it wasn't because he was preaching it. He was just living it. And I said, it just felt right to me. And it was something that I could read and I can do on my own because I like to do things on my own and do them my way. But I was able to use him at least as a moral compass. We both discovered Warren Buffett around the same time. But, you know, you went a little bit further here because after that experience with that company, you started to put yourself out and started to meet some great investors, one of whom was Manish Pabrai. Tell us who he is. Yeah, Manish Pabrai. Well, if I can just sort of bring you to then, you know, some of my choices that I made after I left that brokerage house were not of my own making. It was that I didn't have any other choices available to me because I'd tarnished my copybook so badly that a lot of people didn't want to hire me. Mm -hmm. But, well, Monish Pabrai is this, funnily enough, I now live in Switzerland, but I was an immigrant to the United States. And Monish Pabrai was also an immigrant into the United States who'd also discovered Warren Buffett around the same time we had. He had started a IT consulting business, which he had sold, and then he'd started investing primarily his own money in a fund very, very similar to Warren Buffett's, modeled on Warren Buffett's. But I would not have met him if I had not been reading up 
on everything Warren Buffett and, of course, Berkshire Hathaway and Charlie Munger related. And so the way I found myself in front of him was to do with the fact that I had decided that writing thank you notes was a good thing to do, handwritten thank you notes. Hmm. And an analyst or an intern of mine had taken me to his partnership meeting, and I had written a thank you note to Monish Pabrai, and he responded to it. Mm-hmm. And had I not written that thank you note, which was one of thousands that I've written in my lifetime, I may never have met him. And in some ways, I think that obviously Warren Buffett is more famous, but I think that the person who really changed my life more is Monish Pabrai than Warren Buffett. I think having changed my life, I got to have lunch with Warren Buffett, who accelerated my learning. But Monish Pabrai came first, and if it wasn't for Monish Pabrai, Warren Buffett wouldn't have happened. So tell us about your lunch with Warren Buffett. What can you share with us about that? You know, so I will tell you, Steve, that I was a little sick at the time because I was just so nervous. I became sleepless in the three or four (laughs) days beforehand. And I would tell you that afterwards, I was utterly exhausted. And I can tell you that Warren Buffett was not utterly exhausted. He was energized. And his mind is so powerful and so penetrating that I've read this elsewhere. Alice Schroeder who wrote that biography of his, has written the same thing. He leaves people exhausted. But I think that the thing that really floored me was that I expected on some level to see that Warren Buffett wanted to build Berkshire Hathaway into this very successful and admired company that it is today. And I'm not saying that that's not a goal of his. It clearly is, but it's not the most important goal. What really floored me was how it became really clear to me that he did not want to do anything that took him out of his sense of alignment and comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And it, it came across to me when I asked him this question. I said, you know, Warren Buffett, and at first I started calling him Mr. Buffett. Mm-hmm. Then eventually he said, he said, look, guy, first of all, Monish's daughters will call me Warren, and they were already <laughs> calling him Warren, and yeah. then eventually you will, but you yeah. might as well just start now. <laughs> he was working hard to put us all sure. at our ease. But I asked him if, you know, I had recently read this book, The Starfish and the Spider, And the book describes how spiders are kind of like you pull off a spider's leg and it can't grow the leg back. But if you pull off the leg of a starfish, it can. So Mm -hmm. starfish are more resilient creatures. And I kind of described to him how I thought Berkshire Hathaway was a kind of a starfish. You know, it had so many parts to it that one part could fail, but it wouldn't affect the rest, which is not necessarily the case in other businesses where if one part fails, everything fails. So I asked him the question. I learned to say Warren. I said, Warren, Did you intend to build it this way when you started off 20 years out? And the way I remember it is, I don't know if he actually did this, but it's like he put his hand up to me and said, Guy, I need to explain something to you. He said, Berkshire Hathaway is the way it is because it suits him. He said it suits him for it to be that way. And he said if he'd had a different personality, Berkshire Hathaway would have been different. And I don't remember if he said this, but... What I took away from it is that if he would have had a personality that was more like Jack Welch, then Berkshire Hathaway might have looked more like GE than like Berkshire Hathaway. And I think that that's such a profound insight, because I think that many of us in the at least the professional investing world are trying to make ourselves into something. And I didn't really understand, and it didn't really sink in for another six to eight months afterwards, that there was no point trying to be Warren Buffett. There was no point trying to be Bill Ackman. What I needed to be George Soros or anybody else, I needed to be myself. 
You know, Guy, I want to ask you one other question here because we are running out of time. You've stated that you think individual investors have a big advantage over the professional investor. We've got about a minute left. Tell us why. Well, individual investors don't have all of the incentive biases and all of the noise that is happening for a professional investor. Professional investors are worried about end-of-year evaluations, about their clients calling them up and asking them why something happened or why something didn't happen. And so as a professional investor, one way or another, you always have somebody looking over your shoulder and there's an awareness of that. And I think that the best decisions are made when we go into a room alone and ask ourselves, am I comfortable doing this? I with me, myself. And that is something that an individual investor is ideally suited to do. And individual investors should trust their own instincts. Their instincts are right. Don't let Wall Street convince you otherwise. Oh, that's great advice. The book is The Education of a Value Investor, and you can see why you named it so. There is so much more that we cannot get to in this interview. The subtitle is My Transformative Quest for Wealth, Wisdom, and Enlightenment. And you can see that guy really goes into depth and really talks about his personal experiences and how he was changed and how he's actually been able to create the world around him to suit the way he does it best by using models like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Manish Pabrai. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you on again. Steve, it's my great pleasure. And I want you to know that I think you do an incredible service to your listeners. I'm very impressed with your show. Thank you so much. Take care. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the people involved in the making of this show. Senior producer Erica Stamolo, engineer Brian Zykowitz, senior editor Carol Malzone, and John Sova, who handles our digital platform. And of course, finally, contributor Terry Story. Any interviewee's appearance on The Steve Pomerantz Show does not represent any endorsement or confer any opinion whatsoever, either positive or negative, by The Steve Pomerantz Show or any media by which The Steve Pomerantz Show is distributed. Thank you so much for joining us. Investing involves risk, and listeners should carefully consider their own investment objectives and never rely on any single chart, graph, or marketing piece to make decisions. The radio show is intended for informational purposes only, is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities, and should not be considered tax legal investment advice. Please contact your tax legal financial professional with questions about your specific needs and circumstances. The information in the show is obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All data are driven from publicly available information and has not been independently verified by United Capital. Neither United Capital nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. United Capital is not giving tax, legal, investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with United Capital.